0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Howard Burton about a series of science books based on Ideas Rocho Collections entitled Conversations About, and today we will talk about Conversations About Neuroscience. This Ideas Roadshow collection includes five Ideas Roadshow books that have been developed from filmed wide-ranging conversations with the following leading neuroscientists. Lisa Feldman Barrett, Jennifer Grove, Kalanit Gryll Specter, John Duncan and Miguel, uh, Miguel Nicolelis. This collection includes a detailed preface highlighting the connections between the different books, which offers a uniquely accessible window into frontline research and scholarship, while each individual book also includes a detailed introduction plus questions for discussion. These mind-stretching books provide readers through an engaging uh, dialogue format with a, a wide range of fascinating findings in today's neuroscience research, such as How the brain combines various streams of sensory input to determine where where things are together with uh, corresponding implications for a wide range of issues from neuroplasticity to evolutionary mechanisms. How our brain is anticipating and making sense of sensory inputs from its environment. How functional imaging techniques are used to visualize the brain in action and how it functions to recognize people, objects and places whether intelligence can be measured and improved, what role our frontal lobe plays in executive control, sophisticated ways of harnessing the thoughts of rats, monkeys, and humans to drive mechanical devices in the rapidly emerging field of brain-machine interfaces, and much more. My guest today, Howard Burton, is the founder and host of All Ideas Roadshow Conversations and was the founding executive director of Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. He holds a PhD in theoretical physics and an MA in philosophy.
2: Well, Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So as we're going through the uh, very tiresome and unprecedented time during the pandemic, can you tell us how has it influenced you and your work?
0: Well, I think it's it's influenced me in in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, like like everyone, it's forced me to take a high level view of uh, of how we're connected and of how uh, I guess the the how dependent we are on research and and innovation. And this is something which, for the most part, I think people can. Uh, sweep under the rug in their day-to-day lives but when you're in a situation when everybody is suffering everybody is having all sorts of uh, exceptional conditions imposed upon themselves and the one clear way out of the morass is to be able to harness research and innovation uh, then i think it forces people or at least it should force them to appreciate the fundamental importance of that to force them to ask questions like to what extent are we doing that as well as we can to what extent are we perhaps not doing that as well as we can how can it be improved how appreciated is it and these are questions that have certainly uh, come to the forefront of my mind how did we get here how can we get out of here how can we do our best to ensure that uh, this sort of thing doesn't happen again, or at least if it happens, we can deal with it in a better way. And that has, like a lot of people, that those are questions that that have uh, come into uh, my mind. So that's certainly one thing that's uh, that's happened. Um, another thing that's that I've been personally feeling quite frustrated by is that uh, many of those questions haven't really been asked. And instead, what we're bombarded with are rather, Different sorts of politically oriented questions. So which politician has succeeded? Which politician has failed? To what extent are the conspiracy theories? I don't know if you you even remember this, because it seems like it was 35 years ago, but there was a lot of talk when the pandemic first started. With people uh, in the media they were focused on where did this happen and was it you know was it deliberate and did it come from a Chinese lab and have we you know this sort of nonsense so there's been an awful lot of nonsense that we've been bombarded with for a long period of time where people I think haven't tried to address the real questions and have have willfully distracted themselves from interesting questions um, uh, that are associated with Uh, the pandemic. So that has been particularly striking for me, uh, as well. And then I guess lastly, on a personal front, the pandemic uh, has forced all of us to slow down and not continue doing what we would have normally done uh, in the normal course, not continue in the preset trajectory that we might have had. And that has certainly been the case for me, as well as for, of course, uh, many other people. I was all, in fact, set to do a, a film in a different direction, and which would have involved a lot of travel. And I had to shut that down and rethink everything that I have done before. How can the information be best conveyed? To what extent do things need to be reworked or reformatted or repositioned? Um, and that has actually been quite a salutary uh, experience for me. And uh, so I say this in full knowledge of the fact that there has been a tremendous amount of suffering and a tremendous amount of uh, difficulty that people are facing, and I am very fortunate and very appreciative of the fact that I have uh, been spared that. But nonetheless, I think there can be very positive aspects associated with an enforced period of reflection, and that has certainly been the case for me as well.
2: And have you developed any hobbies or some sort of habits uh, during this time, maybe going for a walk?
0: I, I, I definitely go for a walk. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm very fortunate to have uh, uh, a wonderful dog uh, who takes me, who's very gracious. He takes me for walks on a regular basis. Uh, that's not a new thing. Uh, our lifestyle is such that we work independently uh, and we work from home so uh, our, I don't think our, our day-to-day lifestyle has uh, has changed remarkably uh, uh, I haven't I have developed new interests uh, but I don't think that's so much pandemic related uh, than 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 anything else I, I would say the one major change has been that we don't travel uh, and we were traveling an awful lot right before for all sorts of uh, business reasons and we don't uh, obviously we haven't done that at all we haven't gone anywhere for the better part of uh i don't know 16 months or whenever it was i was i was in i was in the uk in march of 2020 um and that was the last time uh not only did i did i left france i think it's probably the last time i left my village uh so <laughs> I, I haven't uh i i haven't gone anywhere certainly a lot of reading and uh and and because uh Because we've reformatted all of these conversations in print, uh, I've learned the corresponding software, InDesign, this sort of thing. So I've spent a lot of time uh, enhancing in various different directions. These uh, these applied to whatever you want to call them, Adobe Creative Cloud uh, skills. But um, uh, I I don't think anything other than that has uh, uh, on a transformative level has happened. Those are some valuable skills. <laughs> yes. Oh, they're absolutely valuable. They're fundamentally necessary. I mean, they're, they're amazing. I mean, just as, as an aside, uh, and I, I suppose we'll get to this in a different um, way, but when I started Ideas Roadshow, the thinking was uh, that digital media technology has now reached a point where we can convey interesting ideas and, and stories in a way which we haven't been able to do before. Uh, and that should be capitalized on, and that was the thinking broad brush that went went into it, and and I think that's true. I don't. I, I certainly wouldn't say that that's not the case. But uh, what has changed is that my understanding of what digital media technology uh, is has changed significantly. At the time, I was just thinking cameras and maybe you know audio equipment, video equipment. And that's, of course, uh, that has changed and uh, is the, the quality is remarkably high. And, of course, coupled with the the, the Internet and so forth. Um, and so that has been transformative. But I'm not even sure that's the most transformative thing. One of the things I've come to appreciate is all of the editing technology, all of the software, whether it's Adobe Audition. Uh, so I sound like I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I work for Adobe, which I don't. And, and there, there are others. but. Um, the, the number of the, the, the number of these uh, these different types of software that can be integrated together to enable you to edit appropriately. So there's this wonderful uh, video editing software and it's not just Adobe so there's uh, Premiere Pro which is what I use but there's also Final Cut and there are all sorts of different types of software. The idea that you can now make movies, using these high level cameras and, but also even more significantly, I would say use the software or I mentioned InDesign uh, for books or uh, audition and and another comparable uh, uh, programs for audio. Um, That's, I think the real game changer in terms of content, because once you have the power of editing and framing and repositioning things in the highest possible way, um, then you're able to produce professional quality uh, packages of information uh, that that can really be uh, wonderfully informative and engaging and stimulating for the uh, uh, for all sorts of different uh, consumers or viewers or, or listeners or, or readers or what have you. It's not enough, in other words, just to have the raw content. You need to be, which is obviously necessary, but you need to be able to do something with it, and that's something that I hadn't appreciated that the real game changer is all the different ways that you can actually uh, frame that content in such a way as to produce professional quality uh, resources.
2: Yes, and as you mentioned, uh, you had to learn all all of these skills. So what is your background? Is it more media or...?
0: No, I I have an academic background. Uh, So I have a... uh, uh, a master's degree in philosophy and a PhD in theoretical physics. And uh, I'm Canadian uh, by by origin, uh, although I live in, uh, in France now, but I, I've lived for many years in Canada. And in fact, after my PhD, through a curious set of uh, coincidences or events, a concatenation of events, uh, I found myself... Um, running a a building and running a Theoretical Physics Institute in Waterloo, Ontario called Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. And that was a fascinating and interesting ride uh, where I had the opportunity to um, do all sorts of things. Uh, And in fact, so here it's time for my shameless plug. So I wrote a book about that called First Principles, Building Perimeter Institute, where I detail the story of that because it was quite an unlikely story where we were able to uh, build an institute. And by we, I mean myself and uh, a philanthropist, businessman philanthropist by the name of Mike Lazaridis, who was uh, the the technical brains behind uh, something called the BlockBerry that your older listeners may be familiar with. I'm not sure if your younger listeners would be. Uh, but it was certainly a pioneer in uh, mobile devices. Uh, it was a pager that was... Uh, for a time, uh, a world-leading uh, smartphone, and um, and the two of us uh, w- had this wonderful experience where we were able to construct uh, this uh, this theoretical physics institute in Waterloo from scratch. Uh, so I had a not only do I have a, a scientific background in terms of uh, my PhD and so forth, uh, I was suddenly catapulted into the role of scientific administrator, which is itself. Uh, an interesting and unusual challenge. So I had the opportunity to do that for the better part of a decade, which was great fun and learned all sorts of things and met all sorts of interesting people along the way. And uh, even doing things like uh, working with architects to build a building. And of course you're hiring and managing all sorts of people. You're conducting a wide range of scientific meetings. I must've been an over, gosh, I don't know, I would say between 500 and a thousand scientific meetings, academic meetings. Um, and, and I'm probably the only person on planet earth who can say this. Uh, <laughs> and I've chaired every single one of them. I don't think I've ever been in a scientific meeting that I haven't shared. So, uh, a, you will uh, doubtless appreciate, um, uh, that that's a very unusual situation to be in. Normally what happens is one makes one's way through the academic ranks and, uh, and is a fly on the wall for a long period of time, and if one keeps going, eventually one becomes the, the department head of this or the dean of that or, or what have you and is in a position of chairing meetings. Um, I was in a very uh, unusual set of circumstances where, uh, as I say, I was catapulted into this into this position of leadership, uh, which was took a little bit of time getting used to, but uh, so I found myself chairing basically every scientific meeting I've been in. So that's a, I'm not sure that's an accomplishment, but it's a, it's certainly a fact. So uh, anyway, so then I, I did that. Uh, and then one of the things that uh, we did as, as well as all obviously the scientific mandate of um, perimeter was to create an outreach mandate. And this led me to indulge myself in another passion, which is communicating scientific ideas to the general public, uh, specifically through various different audiences, uh, sometimes to teachers, sometimes through uh, uh, students at all different levels, and then sometimes to the general public writ large, and trying to think of ways in which we could do Uh, not just a worthy way, but to some extent, maybe even a better way than than what had been done before. Trying to take a critical look and saying there are lots of various different initiatives, what works, what doesn't work, how can we contribute in a unique way? How can we do something that's a little bit different? And how can we leverage the fact that uh, we have a a full-fledged working research institution where not only do we have all these wonderful uh, people permanently associated with it, Uh, we have students, we have a critical mass of people from the surrounding area, but we also have very high-level visitors who are passing through on a regular basis. So how can they be harnessed? What programs might we be able to develop? How can we stimulate um, the general public and perhaps a new and different uh, uh, or or at least equally engaging way as as some other places are doing? And this led to all sorts of interesting conclusions, um, And one primary conclusion that I came to is that the standard story that you might hear from an academic administrator, which is, uh, how can I get all of my high-level faculty to talk to people? Because I've got all these great people, and they won't. I can't get them to talk to the media. Nobody knows about them. Nobody knows all the all the wonderful research which is going on within our campus or within our institution. Um, And and this was illuminating and bemusing. To me at the same time, because it made me appreciate that the problem, which is so often diagnosed, shall we say, which is that, well, all of these researchers, you know, they uh, they may be great at research, but they're terrible at communicating. They have no way of being able to appropriately communicate their ideas to the general public or they're just too damn busy all the time. They don't have any motivation. They're not interested. They're, They're just focused on themselves and their research. All of that is just flat out wrong. That in fact, well, it may apply, of course, in some select cases. By and large, people who are doing research are very interested and motivated, and excited at the prospect of uh, of communicating their ideas to the general public. Uh, they are quite capable of doing so. Many of them are extremely capable of doing so. Um, and in fact, ironically, there is little that these people would by and large uh, like to do more than to be talking about their ideas in a way which can be uh, uh, understood and and engaging to the general public. The problem is that by and large they do not have sufficient opportunities to do so. instead what happens is they win an award, they get some journalist thrust in their face who says, "That's great, you won this award. Can you please explain your life's work in 15 seconds? They have people who, come at them because they have a particular angle that they're looking for controversy and they've heard that some people disagree with them and they want them to say some, you know, vitriolic ad hominem attack against somebody else or that there's some other uh, political controversy that, that goes on. There's something about nuclear power or there's something about climate change or there's, you know, there's some, uh, there's somebody who's saying all sorts of antagonistic Things with an, uh, an agenda over here, and they're looking for a response. That's, that's the standard way in which these people are, are asked or forced to engage. And that, of course, runs very counter to their motivations, to their orientation, and, uh, and, and to the basic scientific outlook. And so, uh, what, I, what I appreciated, which is hardly a groundbreaking insight. Uh, And I I know that you've appreciated this as well, is that what's required is for us to go beyond that and to provide extra fora for these people to be able to interact in in an engaging way, in a non-political way, just about their ideas. And then when you do that, you find that they are very candid. They will say all sorts of things like, well, I used to think X and now I think Y. I'm not really sure why I thought X. Uh, maybe tomorrow I'll think, I'll think said, I'll think something completely different or the, the person who's critiquing me about this. Well, they actually have a point. Uh, I can't really justify that. But on the other hand, I can say this and that, 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 that I do think stands up and you, all of a sudden you enter a realm of substance. So it's not that they are, uh, they're opposed to doing so on principle. It's not that they are unwilling or incapable, but they do not have the right forum to be able to express those ideas in, in an objective and, and informative way. And, and I think uh, we should all be doing what we can to create such, uh, such fora, because there are an awful lot of very smart and engaged and passionate and, and motivated people who can make real contributions. And we just have to find a way of listening to them and, and, and getting their thoughts out there.
2: So it does appear that you approach the communication with the same scientific rigor as you would uh, um, any experiments, really. So do you think that your uh, insider insights into the workings of the um, uh, scientific establishment and your background in science really helped you to be a more effective communicator?
0: I think it did. Uh, But if I'm honest, I'm not sure it has anything to do with science, uh, because I think you can say the same thing about history. I think you can say, uh, I think you can say the same thing about I've talked to people uh, uh, in religious studies. I've talked to people in cultural studies. Um, I, it, it, there, is, there is a certain amount of rigor and objectivity and an honesty and candor and recognizing what one knows and what one doesn't know and taking oneself out of the equation which I think is certainly uh, instantiated in good scientific practices, but I don't think it's limited to science. And, uh, and I, I think it's just common sense, whatever you want to call it, research, scholarship, it's the way to make progress in any particular field. It's the way to have a substantive discussion about anything. There's nothing that says that uh, we need to have a, you know, a PhD in molecular biology in order to have a substantive conversation about uh, uh, criminal law or, or about in, uh, whatever, uh, about reforming democracy or, or what have you. Something which may not have anything particularly uh, you know, scientific in the natural science sense of it. Um, it's, it's a question of being able to objectively say, what are the issues in play? what are the what are the views? what are the positions? how are they defended? how are they supportive uh, uh, how can we critically analyze and and discuss the pros and cons of a particular position without descending into these very petty personal uh, ad hominem attacks?
2: Yes, for sure, critical thinking and analytical skills are so important, isn't it and they should be should be taught uh, quite early in uh, in life as well
0: yes absolutely uh and uh, and and i guess on the pedagogical front one of the things that's always irritated me is and this certainly applies i would i would argue it implies uh, it implies rather uh perhaps even more to to the sciences than than to the humanities and other areas but perhaps that's wrong uh, and that is this idea of what do we mean by knowledge, and what are we really hoping for through the educational practice? So people people throw words around the critical thinking a lot, um, and and at the same time, then they go back immediately and say yes, but well, what we're really interested in doing, of course, is is instantiating a bunch of knowledge. We're drilling knowledge into these uh, these these people's heads. So by the time somebody leaves school, they should be they should be able to you know, integrate such and such class of functions. So they should be able to uh, know when the, the, the War of 1812 happened, which is not terribly difficult as it happens, uh, or, or, or they should be able to, uh, you know, they, they should have some sense of, uh, of, 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 of what we mean by democracy or what have you. And I'm, I'm not suggesting those things are unimportant. Obviously, they're important. Obviously, you do have to know how to integrate functions. You do have to have a, a basic sense of, dates and times and places in history, you do have to understand standard canonical definitions and frameworks of things. So I'm not, for a moment, suggesting that those things are not important. But by and large, the way that they are taught is they are, the, the model is you have a teacher who knows X, and the teacher is transmitting X to you. And your job is to be able to show sufficient command or expertise or ability to regurgitate or whoever you want to describe it, X, by the time you leave. And, that's, and you do that through a series of hoops that you go through, namely tests and exams and so forth and so on. And, and that whole framework, of course, doesn't have anything to do with critical thinking, qua critical thinking. And moreover, nine times out of 10, it's really bloody boring. Because people don't see any motivation for why they have to learn those things. They don't get the bigger picture. They don't get the framework. They don't understand that people used to believe this sort of thing, and now they believe that sort of thing. What happened? How did, that, how did their views actually change? Why did, people, uh, why did people come to the conclusion that they came to? What are the open mysteries that we still have? Um, they're also not taught, uh, or at least it's not communicated to them, that there's a certain amount of, quite frankly, boring stuff that has to go on in order to be able to get to the next level. when Certainly for me, when I was uh, a student, nobody ever told me, yeah, a lot of this stuff that you have to do is boring. Uh, It's not interesting. We're not going to mince our words. But guess what? You need to be able to develop a certain facility with it. You need to understand how to do it because there are these other issues that aren't boring that require a knowledge of that. That's never communicated. You don't see the big picture. You don't have the opportunity to question if if you're presented with cases such as we used to think this and now we think that that naturally leads to well uh, maybe maybe that's not right either maybe there's a, maybe there's another uh, problem what's wrong with our present theory that people 30 years from now might be able to look critically at and say uh, okay well that that changed into something else and and rather than look at critical thinking as this extra thing uh, I think if we Frame it within the basic context of of appreciating what it is that we're doing through the pedagogical process that will uh, that will do a much better job in making people inclined to ask and deal with the right sort of questions to start with.
2: Yes, for sure. big picture is really important. So another thing I wanted your perspective on is actually on the community of the science communication. So is there a lot of collaboration and how welcoming is it?
0: Oh, gosh. Uh, So you'll be relieved to know that this is a short answer, which is, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I think you would be far better placed to answer that question than I would. Uh, So what do you think?
2: Yeah, it depends. I think there are different uh, communities uh, depending on on the fields as such. Uh, But I'm just thinking about... Uh, compared to scientific communities. For example, there are really inclusive and some of them can be a little bit less inclusive. For people who are considering uh, switching their careers, maybe they would be looking towards uh, more collaborative uh, uh, sort of communities they want to work uh, on, but still doing science that uh, they're passionate about.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's, I'm I'm sure that's true. Uh, I, I think it, it's probably the case, so I'm speculating, so I, I, uh, please let me know what you think. But what tends to happen sociologically, and this is normal, this is just what happens when you get a bunch of humans together in, in any uh, domain, I would, I would suspect. Uh, when you have people who are specialists in a particular domain, they tend to be more aligned with a particular orientation and a particular viewpoint, and I don't think this is subject-specific at all. Um, so if you have people who self-select to be interested in a particular sub-discipline or sub-aspect of microbiology or of uh, cosmology or, or of uh, Renaissance art or what have you, uh, there are different socio- sort of micro-sociological fault lines uh, in, in those larger areas, and then you willfully associate yourself with a particular subcommunity based upon your proclivities and what you happen to believe in, um, and then you spend your time writing papers and thinking about these things within that framework, within that paradigm, and that's all reasonable. Uh, people, I think, are, are often very critical of that. I, I'm not so critical of it. I think you should be passionate about what you believe in, and it only makes sense that what you believe in Uh, you consider to be the thing which is the most important thing to be doing. Otherwise, why the heck should you be doing it? So that in and of itself, I don't think is so uh, uh, unreasonable or or indefensible at all. The problem when you talk about the rigidity, I think, of of thinking or the receptivity to other ideas is that this leads to a little bit of... uh, Huddling together uh, behind the barricades, as it were, and saying, "Okay, we believe we, our community believes X. There are these other guys over there that believe Y. Uh, they're all crazy, or why do they believe that? Or they don't pay enough attention to us, or they're doing it because they get the most amount of funding, or you know, what what have you?" And so you start to get this 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 clique-iness that tends to happen, um, and and, uh, and 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 spreads throughout the the, the community. I would imagine, and here I'm going into full bore speculative mode. I would imagine within the the science communication world, you don't tend to get that sort of thing as much because the motivation is to say, look, our job is to be able to not so much represent these ideas or these positions, but depict them in such a way that people who are not uh, specialists can understand what's going on. So you have a higher level uh, view. When, when your job is to be representing communities uh, and representing the lay of the land, which leads you, I think, naturally by, by by, not even so much by disposition, although it may be that too, but by reinforcement of what it is that you're doing to, to have a broader, more inclusive, less judgmental approach. And then, of course, there's the very fact that if you're in the science communication business, uh, as you are, at least as you are partly, you're sort of uh, personally uh, split in terms of your own research, uh, I appreciate it, and your science communication interests. Um, in the domain of science communication, you have to be broader. So you're talking to people who may be uh, uh, interested in, in, in physics, or they may be interested in uh, in material science, or they may be interested in areas of uh, animal behavior or something which doesn't directly correspond to what your particular research is. And that forces you to have a much broader perspective. And that too, I think, at least statistically, would, would have the corresponding effect of, uh, of limiting your orientation towards uh, dogmatism. And, uh, and again, I think that's all very natural, but I would imagine that those those forces, those sort of uh, societal or, or at least sociological forces uh, are at play as well.
2: Yes, for sure. And on the communications of ideas, uh, you mentioned the Ideas Roadshow project. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: So Ideas Roadshow is uh, something that I've been doing pretty well exclusively for uh Let's say eight years now, and uh, a little bit more, in fact. Uh, at, uh, and and it's gone through all sorts of um, ups and downs, and it's been an exciting venture. So I seem to be, I seem to uh, have a, a an entrepreneurial mindset, and which is not something that I would have imagined had you had we had this conversation thirty years ago. I it wouldn't have been the uh, the mm-hmm. adjective I would have used to describe myself, um, and. And I've had different experiences about starting things from scratch. And one of the one of the interesting things about starting things from scratch there are many interesting things. But one of the interesting things when you start something from scratch is that um, that afterwards, after you've built it and after it becomes a thing, people inevitably assume that it had some almost preset trajectory to it. They say, "Ah, oh, I see now that it, it it." They look at it from they look at it retroactively from what it is, and they assume that there was a fairly straightforward progression from uh, some initial condition where you had things sorted out and you said, now I'm going to make X, and then and then you led to what, what it is that you actually made. Whereas in reality, anybody who's ever built anything knows that that's actually not the way it works. What happens is you you have all sorts of different ideas, and many of them go in all sorts of different directions, and you reach all sorts of dead ends, and you eventually wind up at X. Uh, but that's a far cry, almost invariably, from what you started out with, and and the same, of course, is true with Ideas Roadshow. So what we what X turned out to be is uh, a collection of over one hundred filmed conversations uh, with a wide variety of experts in different fields that are framed primarily within uh, a print context, within books. Um, the, the raw content was in these film conversations, but then they were extensively reworked and presented in a way which could be accessible to the, uh, the non-specialist, and yet at the same time, hopefully revealing and stimulating, even for the specialist, to be able to get an insider view of what the core uh, ideas and uh, and concepts and, on the personal level, frustration and passions and excitement about that sort of research was really all about. And so, as I said, we've had uh, over 100 of these. We have 20 of these uh, collections uh, of five conversations each. All of the conversations are broken into chapters to best frame the ideas. Uh, There are questions for discussion that are inserted at the end of of every chapter to hopefully uh, force people or at least get people, should they wish, to reflect upon some of the points that are being made. There's an introduction which... uh, is put at the beginning of every one of the conversations to describe uh, some of the highlights of that conversation and the proclivities and the orientation of of the expert. And then within the collections, there's even a preface that that goes at a higher level to try to link across those conversations and point out to what extent some of the ideas are, are representative of some key issues in the field. So the whole point is to be able to give people in the most comprehensive and lucid way possible a snapshot of at least some. It's not trying to be representative of the whole field, of course, but at least some ideas, some concepts of what it's like to be actually engaged in that research, mixing research insights and personal reflections in a hopefully a relatively seamless way.
2: Yes, for sure. And that's the appeal of the format that you use, uh, because we're less receptive to, to cold analytical ways of conveying, conveying uh, difficult to, to digest information. And we're more receptive to more passionate um, um, sort of uh, communication of the intimate knowledge, but also admitting that there are things that we still don't know.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I guess one, one other point to make uh, that, uh, that, that should be reinforced is this is not, what I'm doing is not meant in any way to be a substitute for more formal or rigorous approaches to knowledge. So if you pick up our conversations about neuroscience, I am not for a moment suggesting, if you want to learn about neuroscience, this is all you need to do. Just get our book and you'll know neuroscience or neuroscience in three minutes or, you know, any anything like that. That's, there is no Uh, Not only is there no implication of that, I strongly reject that view. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, um, if you're interested in neuroscience, you should, uh, this is, picking up our book will help, will be one of the things that will help to give you a deeper understanding of what that research community is really all about. But of course, if you really want to understand some of the ideas, in addition to our book, you should read The books that are written by not only uh, the people that we've spoken with, but other people. Uh, There are videos to watch. There are online courses to take. There are all sorts of things to deepen your knowledge because it's not a binary situation. You don't either know something about neuroscience or you know nothing about neuroscience. Um, Almost all of us are, and, and even experts, of course, are to some extent in that continuum. They're obviously on, 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 on one side of the continuum, but they're not. it's not a binary situation by any stretch of the imagination, which is why at the end of all of these uh, little uh, separate conversations that we have, I have a little page inserted for uh, continuing the conversation where I highlight, if you're interested more in what Lisa Feldman Barrett is saying, well, here are some of the books that she has written that, that, that explain some of these ideas in more details. Or if you're interested in what John Duncan is saying, Here's his book, which explains some of these ideas in more detail, and so forth. Um, and there's a, there's sort of a business aspect which is amusing about this, because uh, the publishing community is by and large running scared. So anytime you say you're publishing a book, and you're 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 looked at immediately as a competitor. And this has always been somewhat mystifying to me, because what I was saying to people at the beginning is, look, uh, what I'm actually doing is I'm trying to promote. These people who may be your authors. I am not suggesting that if they if they read uh, our book, then they won't read yours. Quite the contrary. In fact, I think our book can be seen as a worthy complement, both as an entree to your book or as an additional uh, uh, mode of, of generating further perspective for people who have bought that book. Um, that's that's an argument which I remain strongly convinced is correct, but is uh, to date, falling on deaf ears because anytime you say uh, publisher and book and different, uh, then publishers will immediately classify you as the enemy, which needs to be destroyed, which is uh, amusing uh, and not terribly helpful. and And I think uh, mis- misappreciates the the whole process of learning and knowledge uh, within the the research world that. That not only uh, are there many things that people don't understand about neuroscience, say, since we're talking about that at the moment, um, and and that's fascinating and can be accessible to them and, and is really interesting uh, in its own right, but there are wonderfully interesting and important things about the world of research, both in terms of how it applies to neuroscience and just in general, that they can understand what it's like to be a neuroscientist, they can un- they can get an appreciation of what that day job, if you will, really is like. What are the- what is the excitement? What are the fears? What are the frustrations? Uh, what does it mean to actually be making progress? Uh, what are the internal divisions within the field? How do they come about? And and these are questions that, by and large, you don't get addressed either through a talk when somebody is, of course, presenting their own perspective and their own position, or a book when, by and large, they're doing exactly the same thing. So it's important, I think, if you want to understand not just the science, but get a deeper appreciation of how science is done, to to have windows into that as well. And I think it's
2: a strength of uh, the, these particular series to have several uh, conversations Um for people to really have a glimpse into the into this world and ideas they have not even considered before that they could t- take on further to explore. So, can you uh, give us a bit of uh, insight of some of the of the conversations you have in
0: the conversations about neuroscience? Sure. Um, so, neuroscience is. Uh, I guess I should preface it by saying. Uh, you're at a conspicuous advantage when you start talking about neuroscience, uh, as I'm sure you're very much aware, which is that unlike people who are working in uh, crystallography or or people who are who are working in um, uh, different areas of, of uh, sociology or who are working in uh, in, in particular applications of uh, nanomaterials, say, or something like that. Um, Neuroscience is something which I think people are already predisposed to be interested in. Uh, There aren't very many scientific areas that people are just, uh, I think it's accepted, it's socially accepted to be very curious and very excited and very interested in neuroscience, of course, I'm generalizing, but I, I think that by and large that generalization holds true. The only thing that comes to my mind, personally, anecdotally, is astronomy. I think that uh, that when you start talking about the universe, people also have this, "Oh, wow, that's really cool." And when you when you talk about new developments in neuroscience, I think people are similarly uh, excited and inclined, uh, and 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 oriented towards perhaps giving you being interested in what you have to say in a way that they might not in in some other areas of science. Um, And there's also the fact that there is without a doubt, the understanding that we are, we are living in, I don't know exactly when it started, but we are clearly living in what, what will later be regarded as the golden age of neuroscience. I mean, neuroscience is one of the most exciting and dynamic areas of, of scientific inquiry right now. And, and that is, uh, I'm sure there are lots of factors uh, uh, associated with that, but perhaps the most obvious one is just simply the diagnostic technology that's happened. I mean, things like fMRI, and it's not the only uh, technology, but the idea that we are able to do experiments and get clear or relatively clear or at least some meaningful uh, data on uh, a wide range of different uh, uh, possibilities and tests and questions uh, th- that that has opened up the door to this explosion of activity, and in fact, uh, along with the 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 development of neuroscience is uh, is I think the progression internally of the field. I, I mean, again, I'm no expert in this. This is just my uh, my reading of things. I think this technology and even the words neuroscience or perhaps even more relevantly cognitive science has forced uh, an alliance between people pursuing the idea of what's actually happening in our brains. How do we think the way we think Uh, what's motivating us Um, that, that has really uh, transformed the landscape over the past 30 years. So it used to be the case that if you were a psychologist, well, then you were doing things, You were uh, whether you were a behaviorist or a behavioralist or whatever you, you might happen to be, you were somebody who – there was almost a sense of dualism, right? I mean, you were oriented with the mind and you were talking about the, uh, the extent to which somebody's uh, personal past and reflections impacted their behavior and you had various theories about that. Um, And, uh, or to the extent that you were doing experimental stuff, you were doing things like the Stroop test and and this sort of thing. And you, you were by and large treating the brain as a black box. And then there were the people who were either doing, uh, hardcore biology, or they were maybe doing some sort of, uh, neural nets, computer modeling type of stuff on the other side, um, and there was very little, uh, it seems to me, interaction between the two. And recently, you are now in a situation where the landscape has been completely transformed, primarily but not exclusively through this diagnostic technology. So now it is, uh, it, it is almost inconceivable for somebody to be calling themselves a psychologist and saying, "Well, I don't pay any attention whatsoever." to anything uh, which is being used in modern medical technology. And that has, I think, affected the way that the the entire field has reacted. And not only has it made for bridges between people who come from the traditional psychology community, but it also has expanded what we mean by the biology of the brain, because we have all of these uh, diagnostic capabilities so that people can come at things from a more perhaps. rigorously biological perspective maybe they even start off uh looking at things like as an undergraduate animal behavior or what have you or the brain and start drifting into the field so more specifically um you have people uh in in this collection that we have like uh lisa feldman barrett who started off as a social psychologist she was studying emotion as as a as a phd student she was she was she was as much of i would say a you know a traditional psychologist in fact she was even she was even doing clinical psychology so uh and and she is now justifiably considered to be a neuroscientist you have people like jennifer gro who as an undergraduate was interested in You know, studying um, equine behavior and horses uh, and doing uh, for her for her thesis at Princeton. She was she was in the Grand Banks of North Carolina, actually looking at at the at the sociology of of these uh, wild horses. So uh, you have people like John Duncan, who I think uh, who is a neuroscientist at Cambridge who came from uh, probably more aligned with uh, uh, at the time what might be considered a more uh, classical psychology background and now is considered one of the world's leading uh, neuroscientists. And so you see evidence of this really productive aspect of sociology in order to, to produce a convergence of some great minds to be able to think about uh, some of the, of the key issues. And that's all to the good of the field. Uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the points which struck me uh, as, I, as I look at as an outsider, because that's obviously what I am in, in this field, um, which is a very, very interesting source of uh, divergence of opinion, scientific opinion. Uh, is this idea of how is the brain structured in terms of a localized versus distributed way of processing information. So that's a really important theme that came up in all sorts of different conversations. Um, and you have very different views on it. Um, and, and and what's interesting, of course, is that it's very clear that it's not transparently one way or the other. Uh, it's not a simplistic situation where everybody that believes X is right and everybody believe that believes why is just deluded or crazy or out to lunch or what have you. Um, obviously, we're dealing with people who are very not only themselves very intelligent and sophisticated, but we're dealing with a wealth of prior information and prior data and prior experimental results that can't just be dismissed with a wave of the hand. Um, and so that's a very I, I think topical and interesting uh, aspect of contemporary neuroscience. So let me let me try to be a little bit more specific in what I'm talking about here. So, and again, this is just my perspective, uh, and I, I'm I'm wholly ignorant. But at least I have the the advantage of of some level of objectivity. So traditionally, my understanding is that people believed that the brain was compartmentalized into different functional areas. So the most extreme version of this way of thinking is the nineteenth century. Uh, uh, Philosophy, if you will, of phrenology. This notion that you could actually depict people's characters based upon the different size of their brains and the lumps of their heads and all the rest of this, with the associated assumption that uh, cognitive processing uh, happened in localized areas and, uh, and uh, that, that, were, that were, like I say, uh, somewhat insulated from each other. And the experimental evidence that pointed to this uh insofar as there was uh, any typically happened from things like brain lesions right you'd have there were famous cases of people who had uh these terrible things that happened to them they had a pull going through their head or what have you and there were some things that they could do and some things that they couldn't do and whether that was because they were uh, uh, their language skills were rendered uh, uh terribly impaired they were aphasic or what have you or whether they had some uh, difficulty in processing certain types of images or what have you. So this argued uh, fairly reasonably uh, for this notion that the brain was actually broken up into different regions and different regions did different things and they more or less didn't have anything to do with one another. And some of the the, the most uh, vociferous and, and uh, uh, uniform, I guess you could say, modern day advocates of this view tend to be in the vision community. And that's because uh, there's been a tremendous amount of work uh, and and very recognized work for which all sorts of Nobel Prizes and the like have been awarded for people who have mapped out the the processing of vision going through various different areas of the brain that tend to be, uh, as you would expect, given the word areas, localized in a particular way. And so there was this understanding that by and large, the input comes in. Uh, hits the optic nerve over here and then goes through these various different areas that are uh, unimaginably uh, labeled V1, V2, and so forth and so on. And then it goes through and then uh, and then you process the image. And so this this tends to result in people from the vision community thinking, well, that's really the way it works. And so at least it works for vision. And so the assumption for the vision people is that's kind of the way it works, period. That's the way the brain works. But then you have people who uh, who are of. Uh, another disposition who say, well, actually, no, uh, that's not to say that doesn't happen at all, but that's not by and large the primary way in which cognitive processing happens. The way that cognitive processing happens is that you have these distributed networks that go throughout the brain and and that it's not just in one particular area, it's more kind of like the internet. Um, and in fact, that's the, that's the fundamental paradigm shift that needs to happen. We have to get away from this notion of local processing into a more distributed model of the entire brain being at work through these networks. And so we have representatives in these conversations about neuroscience of both of these views. So you have Kalanet and Grail Specter, who's a vision scientist at Stanford, very accomplished. She is uh, very much as you would expect along the the representing that view. Again, not dogmatically or anything, but that's her natural inclination. Then you have people like Miguel uh, Nicolales or... Lisa Feldman Barrett, who are much more uh, in, in the network orientation, and this notion of distributed networks are the primary things. And then you have people who are kind of in between, if you will. You have uh, John Duncan at Cambridge, whom I mentioned earlier, who uh, is, in, is 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 in investigating this notion of intelligence and what we mean by intelligence. And so he's looking at executive control and networks, among other things. And he's so he's married to, to some extent, a, a, a view that emphasizes a, a, a particular region of the brain by and large, but at the same time through a network perspective, a more distributed perspective. Jennifer Groh is looking at coordinating all sorts of different processing systems, different sensory perceptions, our sense of vision, our sense of uh, our auditory system, our tactile uh, uh, sensory uh the processing system and asking the question of how these things can actually be combined which of course in itself suggests a rather more meta approach and a more distributed approach So that to me is is fascinating insofar as it, it reveals a very interesting and non-trivial, uh, uh, distinction and fundamental approach to cognitive processing. And these things themselves, I think, have different aspects associated with it. So not coincidentally, people who are of the more distributed view, such as I mentioned before, Lisa Feldman Barrett, such as uh, Miguel Nicolaelis, and so forth, they are asking questions about, well, what does that uh, distribution and our model actually imply about the way the brain works? And one of their key um, uh, points that they make is that this is deeply tied to the fact that the brain is a constantly predicting system. It's this Bayesian predictive system. So it's using these networks and it's using its, its let me say holistic, which is a terrible word. I hate using that word, but anyway, I just said it, mm-hmm. um, uh, approach to be regularly predicting what's going to happen uh, and then and then comparing and contrasting that prediction with the sensory inputs, which is a very different uh, uh, structure or, 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 or framework from this notion that the brain is a sensory receiving device that it kind of sits there and then information is impinged upon our senses and then we process that information. So you have a real distinction in the community from people who are primarily looking at uh, cognitive processing from one perspective or from another perspective and all sorts of interesting ramifications Occur now again. It's far too simplistic and far too inappropriate to say. Well, it must be all one thing or all the other thing. That's obviously not true, uh, and we have a wealth of of, uh, uh, of evidence to support at, at a micro level individual views. But that's not to say that that we won't one day be able to say. Well, actually, what is what is the overall or dominant or most significant. Uh, approach to to understanding how the brain works. Is it more this way or is it more that way? And I think what these conversations show is that we're in the middle of that. The community is, as you would expect, sorting itself out with respect to that. And I would think that if you would hold similar conversations 20 years from now, there will be uh, a broader level of consensus with respect to those key issues.
2: Yes, for sure. And our hypotheses are only as good as our best methods. So hopefully the improvement of technologies will sort of provide us uh, with the view of the whole elephant to know its shape. But also this view is also contentious because some uh, uh, opponents are arguing that the brain cannot itself grasp itself by the virtue virtue of being the brain. So again, sort of gets into this murky murky uh, area. Yes. So uh, you also spoke to Miguel Nicolelis yes. about uh, minds and machines. So can you give us uh, a bit of a uh, insight into the brain uh, and machine interfaces?
0: Well, uh, what he has done is 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 really remarkable, uh, and I think has. And what he is continuing to do, and, and of course, what his colleagues are doing. I'm in no way implying that he's the only person uh, in, in this area, but the ability to be able to uh, construct devices that uh, can, can be, as it were, powered by brainwaves, as he says, to be able to harness our thoughts... Um, to, uh, uh, to, to, to result in a signal which can then, of course, be amplified and be, be, uh, be transformed into being able to do all sorts of different work um, is, is just simply remarkable in all sorts of ways. I mean, it seems very much like science fiction, uh, at least to me. Um, there are obvious overwhelming implications for medical technology, for people who are handicapped, for people who need some some form of assistance to imagine a day when uh, perhaps not even I mean, maybe even today for all I know, um, where all sorts of devices can be used to enable them to do everything from uh, speaking to writing to to physical tasks and, and what have you that is powered by their their thoughts. Uh, again it's it's hard to say this almost with a straight face because it seems uh, it seems so speculative and so out there but it's obviously been extremely well demonstrated. So there's all of that and I'm I, I, happy to get into it. I think uh, the what uh, some of his work that particularly struck me from a while ago but still was uh, just absolutely outstanding. and then of course, um, for those who are, interested in trying to understand, well, what does this tell us about the actual structure of the brain and how we think and um, how can we probe this further? It opens up all sorts of avenues for concrete experimentation when we can take these these approaches, these paradigms and be able to test them further and be able to uh, not only build devices, which is wonderful in, in and of its own right, but also to be able to uh, uh, to learn how the brain works in in more detail. So the the one example that really struck me that was from uh, one of his earlier books, he mentioned the whole philosophy of, can the brain understand the brain and to what extent uh, everything that we know about the world is mediated through the brain. Uh, He he talks exclusively about that. He's an incredibly engaging fellow, Miguel, and he's he's recently written a book about that, which I would certainly urge uh, all of your listeners to buy. Uh, I can't remember the name of it but uh but uh but it's 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 basically about that how the how how everything we know about the universe is mediated through our brains which is of course both a true statement and a statement which is uh oddly underappreciated by by people um but what I'm what I'd like to highlight is the experiment that really captivated me uh and what he did was the following he had uh I believe Memory serves it was a macaque monkey, but I may be wrong, but I think that's what it was. Uh, and he had uh, this monkey uh, with uh, uh, that, that was hooked up to uh, uh, an apparatus whereby there was a signal that it was reading from the brainwaves of the monkey. Um, and the monkey uh, uh, apparently liked fruit, and it was on a treadmill. And what was happening is that the robot... Uh, or rather, the, the the brain waves were fed through. The signal was fed through to uh, a robot that was moving. So as the monkey was moving its legs on the treadmill and was thinking about moving its legs on the treadmill because it was on the treadmill, um, the brain waves that were indicative of that thought and that activity were uh, sent uh, t- remotely to somewhere else, which incidentally happened to be in Japan. But I think that was just for showing off. Um, and 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 that was fed into uh, this robot, so that the monkey 's brain waves in fact acted like the brain of the robot. So here you have a monkey that 's hooked up to this treadmill and as long and and he has the monkey is looking at the robot moving because there 's visual feedback uh, there 's a monitor, so the monkey comes to appreciate the fact that as he is moving and thinking about moving. Um, That forces this robot to be moving that he's looking on uh, uh, through the monitor. And then as long as that robot is moving uh, that he's looking at through the monitor, the monkey gets a shot of fruit juice. And apparently these monkeys are particularly fond of fruit juice. So that has a wonderfully uh, positive reinforcing effect. Um, And so this goes on for a while. The monkey's saying, okay, I'm moving, I'm on the treadmill, Uh, I'm thinking about moving, and then the monkey, uh, uh, rather than the robot, moves, and I get my fruit juice and everything is cool. And then what happens is, so this is is, is remarkable in and of itself, Uh, but then what's really remarkable, at least to me, is that then the treadmill stops. So now, because the monkey is strapped to the treadmill, the monkey can no longer move. But the monkey appreciates the fact that, well, it's not actually about the moving. As long as he's thinking about moving, then the robot will move because that's what is forcing the robot to actually move. So what happens? The monkey can no longer move, but the monkey keeps thinking about moving. So the robot moves. So he keeps getting his juice. To me, that is just an absolutely astounding accomplishment that it's Unequivocally clear that that robot is being powered by the thought processes, that the the the, uh, the the desires, if you will, the imaginings of this monkey, and I would never have thought in my lifetime I would be in a situation where you could uh, conduct an experiment that would unequivocally show something as. Remarkable as that, because you might think in the normal course, okay, well, sure, the robot's moving, but maybe that has to do with some other brain processes that are happening just because he's moving his legs or or this or that or what have you. But here it's very obvious that what's happening is that that it's just the thought, the thinking, the imaginings of that monkey that are driving that process. And this opens the door for a tremendous amount of the so called uh, BMIs or brain machine interfaces. Where you can imagine a spectrum of remarkable technologies that are powered by our thoughts.
2: For sure. And developments like that, it's exactly why we're so fascinated by this field.
0: Yes, absolutely. So,
2: as, as you mentioned, um, uh, it a, a sort of verges from the fiction, uh, science fiction, uh, rather than the reality uh, sometimes. So, you cannot even imagine that uh, something like this could exist. So thinking about the future, um, when we have more safety and the neurotechnology kind of ventures from this fiction to reality, do you think you would be open to a neural augmentation? And what would be your superpower of
0: choice? No, I wouldn't be. I <laughs> wouldn't be open to that. So I'm really an old school guy, uh, um, and I'm not. Um, i I guess I'm not so. Old school, or at least I'm not so dogmatic as to say that um, uh, that, that I'm, you know, I, I want to be in charge of legislating it in such a way that nobody can do it. But I certainly wouldn't want to do it. The way I look at it is, um, I feel that I'm constantly involved in. Uh, neuro augmentation myself, uh, that every day I'm, I'm trying to be involved in neuroaugmentation, And I think I'm a very, very long way from reaching any sort of capacity of what my uh, unenhanced brain can do. So uh, I personally prefer to work on that. Uh, and as much as I am uh, enormously respectful of what people like Miguel Nicolaitis and, and many others are doing, um, I'm I'm extremely conservative in terms of uh, imagining. Uh, let, let me put it this way: uh, the, my modus operandi is that it, you know if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and uh, and so I I think it's a very very different thing to say to somebody who's a quadriplegic. Uh, we're going to uh, try to find a way to enable you to move these limbs. Um, and we're going to use our technology to be able to uh, to help you with these particular areas. Uh, I think that's wonderful. I think it's unequivocally positive and And I think it's deeply inspirational. Um, I think if you're fortunate enough to not require that sort of thing, then, uh, well, that sounds judgmental. For me, I don't feel uh, that it's, uh, I'm not interested, quite frankly, uh, just like I'm not interested in taking all sorts of other uh, drugs uh, or mind altering or anything like that. It's just not uh, it's not for me.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. I agree. I think I also got a little bit augmentation of uh, uh, my neural system to education and caffeine. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, none of us would like to dispense with caffeine. I think caffeine is essential. I think we can all agree on that.
2: Excellent. So we've taken up a lot of your time and can you tell us what are you currently working on and what is your next project?
0: So uh, a couple of different things. Uh, As I mentioned, I I think there's been some clear understanding of what works and what doesn't work, at least uh, with what I've done uh, in, in my little context. And the conclusion that I've come to is I'm very excited about carrying on with Ideas Roadshow. As I say, I've done over 100 of these uh, conversations, and I will continue to do them. And, but uh, what has changed is that I'm going to focus on developing Ideas Road conversations uh, in print form, both as individual ebooks and as these collections available in ebook and paperback of five conversations each. And I'm very excited about doing that on a wide range of different topics. Um, But the topics themselves will be more focused. So rather than conversations about neuroscience or conversations about biology or conversations about history or conversations about psychology or something like that, uh, they will be much more about specific topics and talking to experts about a particular topic and getting a spectrum of different views. So that's something that I'm very excited about moving forwards with, and I have several projects in mind on the print front. And simultaneously, of course, we've spent a lot of time Learning skills and developing understanding of of what film can do in terms of conveying different ideas. And my conclusion is that one of the best things that film can do, and and not just the best thing, because in many ways it can do it uniquely well, is in providing uh, non-specialists, providing interested people with a variety of different perspectives simultaneously, uh, to really give them a panoply of different views in a coherent and engaging way about a wide number of different topics. Um, and so that can be done within a documentary-style format, and I'm very excited about all sorts of projects to be moving forwards there, and we've created a new vehicle, a new imprint called Ideas on Film, uh, to be doing that. So I will, I will be simultaneously working on a number of film projects the first of which is going to be uh, a documentary-style film about the coronavirus pandemic, not only from a public policy perspective, but also from a biological perspective uh, in terms of uh, the vaccine technology, viruses, what we've learned about the the human immune system through this process, uh, environmental considerations, all the rest of that. Uh, So I'll be working on that, as well as a number of different Ideas Roadshow projects uh, to come out with a spectrum of different books with these five conversations with experts around uh, a more defined, perhaps narrower topic.
2: These sound very exciting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also the uh, series of your books?
0: So the best place to go right now, we're a bit in transition, but the best place to go is this Ideas on Film website that I mentioned to you earlier. So that's just ideas-on-film.com. And if you're interested in Ideas Roadshow, there's a page, there's an Ideas Roadshow page, which lists all of these conversations, all 100 conversations, both individually that you can get uh, as as ebooks, and also the 20 collections that you can get as ebooks and paperbacks. If you're interested in knowing uh, about some of these, I mentioned the Perimeter Institute book earlier and a couple of other books. Uh, there's, there'll also be a section about myself and my writings on that Ideas on Film website. So you can get all that information there.
2: Excellent. And I would also encourage our listeners to... Uh look uh, for uh, another episode so discussing conversations about uh, ast- uh, uh, astrophysics and cosmology <laughs> and also uh, conversations about biology on other channels of NewBooks Network. Well, Howard, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Oh, thank you, Galina.